from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to a Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Bahia Nachshavani on March 11, 2017. Bahia is an author that has written three books. Her first book is titled The Saddlebag, and it is a novel based on a historic event related to the Bab, the martyred prophet of the Babi faith that prepared the way for the Baha'i faith. Her second book is titled Paper, which is a novel tracing the origin of paper and reveals the interesting fact that the Bob produced one of his most significant works on British paper. Her third book is The Woman Who Read Too Much, which is a novel centered around a significant historic figure in the Baha'i faith, Tahereh, who was a courageous woman who proclaimed the message of the Bab in a country hostile to any teaching deviating from Shia Islam, and was also a renowned poetess. Bahia will be releasing a new book, which will be quite different from the other three, called Us and Them, which speaks to the current dilemma that Europe and the U.S. are struggling with, namely immigration. In the interview, Bahia reads excerpts from each of her first three novels. I started the interview by asking Bahia to describe her approach to writing. It's very exciting being a Baha'i and being obsessed with writing. I think it's one of the easy ways of expressing one's ideas as a Baha'i, if you happen to also be a little bit obsessive as I am on the subject of words. We've been given guidelines already by Shoghi Effendi that we can't call ourselves Baha'i writers as such. There's no such animal as a Baha'i author. There are writers who are also Baha'is. There are Baha'is who sometimes attempt to write. But to stick those two words together is not what I meant when I said it's rather exciting to have this mandate. It's just that within the Baha'i teachings and within the literature of the Baha'i faith, one finds so much emphasis on language and on the power of language, on the power of words, on the importance of reading. If you happen to be a person like me who is obsessed with writing and reading, you get this feeling of oxygen, And it's tremendously exhilarating to feel that you're not somehow off the rails if you happen to be fascinated by these things. And you're also struggling, as we all are, to manifest the ideals set up for us by Baha'u'llah in his teachings. These are ideals that are inaccessible, that are beyond reach. And yet, somehow, it's similar to what one is trying to do in a tiny, tiny way when one faces the blank page and is struggling to put into words what is inaccessible, what is very, very difficult to make material, even though it seems to be shimmering somewhere in the back of your brain. So this idea of writing has become, for me, something of a spiritual path, if I could put it that way without sounding horrendously pretentious. It's something like writing in a Zen way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The ideal of trying to do it well is somehow linked to the ideals that we find in the most profound mystical writings of the faith, the seven valleys, the hidden words, the struggle to be a true seeker, 
the great longing that you have to be a lover of the truth. How do you attain that? How do you aspire towards it? So because of this fascinating interrelationship between language and Baha'i concepts, if you like, I found myself really fascinated by three things in particular. The three points really boil down to the concepts that Shoghi Effendi highlights when he speaks about the unique nature of the faith as having a sense of the relativity of truth, the continuity of truth, and the progressive nature of religious truth. And the first one, which is relativity, is something I find fascinating as a writer, because in fact, when you look at things from different points of view, it's not at all the same as relativism. It's not that you're hollowing out the notion of truth. It's that the more points of view you can bring to bear on a question, the fuller is your understanding of it. It's what we have in the consultative process. So I've been fascinated by developing this idea of different points of view when I write stories. The second one, which is the idea of continuity, is really the cumulative effect of those different points of view. You know, the progressive and, and cumulative effects. And this is all through the Baha'i writings, one can see this in the metaphor of growth and evolution and the progressive nature of our understanding of truth. But it's also in the idea of the dot on the page, the dot that becomes, that grows into a letter, the letter that becomes a word, the word that can become a phrase that turns into a sentence, the paragraphs made up of multiple sentences, a whole chapter that consists of all kinds of paragraphs linked together coherently and ultimately the book. Now, as a Baha'i, of course, one understands the book in the terms of the covenant of our times. It gives you a glimmering that there are beyond this one covenant and have been in the past and will be in the future, multiple covenants. And so libraries and libraries start rippling out in your mind. And the third point I want to stress is the relationship between structure and form and spirit, if you like, structure and idea, structure and story. And I think this is really interesting from a Baha'i perspective because we have this unique instrument called the administrative order. And many times Shoghi Fendi uses the terminology of form, of structure. He uses the architectural metaphors of building, which is what you do as a writer when you build a story. And there has to be this notion of structure, something very architectural. So you move away from the linear, which is really what a narrative is, to something almost 3D. And as a writer, I've always conceived of stories as shapes, as constructs, as almost geometrical objects. And I find it really interesting to see how do you strike the balance. And maybe I can talk a little bit later on about how sometimes we fail in finding that balance, just as we sometimes flub and trip over ourselves in becoming a little bit too systematic and losing the spirit of the form that we need to achieve. So I was going to talk about the books that I've written in relation to those three concepts. You had mentioned the personage of Shoghi Effendi. For those mm -hmm. who may not be familiar with who he is, could you give us a brief background on, on Shoghi Effendi? I refer to Shoghi Effendi because I'm absolutely fascinated by his use of language. <laughs> Shoghi Effendi was the grandson of the figure we call Abdu'l-Bahá, who was the son of the founder of the Baha'i faith. 
it is due to his extraordinary efforts and exertions that we have the original texts written by the founder of the Baha'i Faith and his son Abdu'l-Baha in the English language. So we owe a great debt of gratitude to the remarkable capacity that this young man who became a guardian, we called him the guardian of the Baha'i Faith at the age of 24, and his translation of the essential seminal works of the founders of the Baha'i Faith into English. He also did something else. He gave the Baha'is a system. He translated, the interpreted the writings of Abdu'l Baha and Baha'u'llah into the system we call the administrative order so that the Baha'i faith isn't just a woolly bunch of cloudy ideas, mystical hopes, pious aspirations, but has a concrete reality, has its feet on the ground, is a system of human governance, if you like, is a form of community building. And that is something we also owe to the interpretive capacities of Shoghi Effendi. And so my reference to him is really as if he were an artist, in fact, which I believe he was. He was both a writer and also an artist in the architectural sense, in his garden landscape designing, in his remarkable capacity to put into material form something which was extremely abstract and in language only in the earliest years of the Baha'i faith. What inspired you to become a novelist and to write The Saddlebag? Becoming a novelist was not something I had set myself out to be. I didn't know I was going to write a story. I didn't know I was going to write a book. I was just fascinated by the gaps in history, the fact that we don't know all the facts. Now, we're living at a particular time when there are so many unknowns mm -hmm. <laughs> at the moment in the political scene in North America in particular that it's quite relevant, actually. It's also dangerous when you don't know all the facts. You start imagining things. And it's all very well to do that if you're a writer and you're writing a little story. It's extremely dangerous <laughs> to do that when you're trying to govern a country or to maintain a democracy. Well, we won't get into that for the minute. But I was absolutely fascinated by little stories that I had found in Baha'i history where there was a hint of something and it left your imagination free to follow that hint and explore all the things that it contained in the unsaid. So there is the story in early Baha'i history of a journey, the herald of the Baha'i teachings, the Bab, who went on a pilgrimage to Mecca from Shiraz, where he was living, to the coast of the Persian Gulf, and then across the water to the landmass of the Arabian Peninsula and round to Jeddah. And from there, he went to Mecca. And following that, he traveled across the desert dunes to Medina. And in the course of his journey, there is a little snippet of a story in the early sacred history of the Baha'i faith, this great epic drama of Nabil's narrative, which we call the Dawnbreakers. And in the course of that journey in the Dawnbreakers, there is this story of how one early morning, the Bab and his companion and his servant are traveling along and they arrive at a well, a disused well, and they stop there to say early morning prayers. And suddenly a Bedouin comes out of the dunes 
and he snatches up the saddlebag which has been laid on the ground while the three of these people are praying and he snatches it up and disappears into the desert. Obviously, he assumes there's wealth in this saddlebag. That's what most people keep in their saddlebags is gold, money, goods, whatever, something valuable. We never know what happens to that Bedouin. However, we do know from the story as it is written down in The Dawnbreakers that there was no such wealth in the saddlebag. There was nothing but a bunch of paper because that's what the Bab was writing on. It was his tablets. It was his great work, Qayyumul Asma. It was all of the treatises that he was writing at the time. So you can just imagine the condition of this Bedouin when he finally gets to open the saddlebag and the disappointment that he must have experienced. Well, all I needed was the idea that there was this thief. He grabbed this bag. He disappears into the dunes. And then I followed him and I followed him with a certain blessing because that is important to know. When they are saying the prayers and this thief comes out of nowhere, the Ethiopian servant of the Bab immediately leaps to his feet and would have run after him to grab the saddlebag. However, we read in the Dawnbreakers that the Bab, without stopping his prayer, holds up his hand and stops his servant from following the thief, beckons him back and continues to pray. And at the end of his prayers, he turns to the man and he says, his name was Mubarak, and he says, had it been the will of God, you would have no doubt been able to catch him and follow him and get back the saddlebag. However, this was not to be. Through the instrumentality of this Arab, these documents, these papers, these words will reach the hands of many who would never have dreamed of having them. I was so struck by this story. I said to myself, my goodness, the Bab has allowed the thief to steal the saddlebag. And maybe he'll allow me to steal the story. <laughs> and that's really how I started to write the saddlebag. I suppose then you tell the tale of what happens to the contents of the saddlebag as a result? Well, after that, it becomes very logical, you see. Once you've stolen the saddlebag, and as I said, my imagination ran after the thief, so I could start imagining what he was going to discover. But first of all, I had to figure out who the guy was, you know. You can't just have somebody run off with the bag without figuring out his character. So it's a very logical business, writing you know, once you get the idea, you start questioning it. So who was the man? Where did he come from? What kind of person was he? How would he have responded to this? You can't figure out how he would feel about finding what was in the bag until you figured out who he was. So you have to ask all those questions about his character, his background, his personality, his everything. So before I knew it, I had this sort of flesh and blood person leaping off the page and demanding my attention. And in order to figure out who he was, no man is an island, John Donne said, you have to also see who his relationships are. He doesn't just exist in the desert alone. There are people he knows, there are places he comes from, there are connections that he must have had. And before I knew it, I created a whole scenario of characters in that desert, because who would there be wandering around in the desert logically? You'd have to have a caravan 
people wouldn't just be living out of the sand. So there's travellers. If he's going to steal from the bar, he would have stolen from somebody else too. And the kinds of people that he would steal from are other people travelling through the desert between Mecca and Bedida, namely other pilgrims, other travellers, a caravan full of travellers. So there must have been other caravans. So before I knew it, I had gone from the thief to another character to another character. I built up all sorts of characters in that caravan through whose hands that saddlebag ultimately passed, because that was what fascinated me. Who else could have seen it? And who else? And who else? And so one chapter tripped into another and the whole little story rolled out like a carpet before me. And before I knew it, I'd written a novel. You know, just you explaining the process and the excitement of it, you just convey the enjoyment that you got out of this whole process. Oh, it was a treat. It was an absolute ball. I mean, I never was as happy as I was writing that story. And really, it was just so exciting to see it unravel. Because it was almost as if it had been written already. And I just happened to have the good luck of finding one end of the thread, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So I pulled and I pulled and I pulled. And the whole thing was there. So it was great. (laughs) It was really good fun. Yes. What I did very visibly in this book, visibly because it's divided up into chapters, each of the chapters is a different point of view, is that I looked at the events that would take place in the course of one 24-hour period from the different points of view of nine characters. So I literally look at one single day from nine different points of view. And because they're different points of view, Although the same events happen in the course of that day, they are perceived entirely differently. It doesn't mean that the truth is different because the truth is simply that day and the events that happened in it. But you get a fuller and fuller appreciation of that enormity of what is in that single day because you're looking at it from these different points of view. So the shape of the book is nine chapters from these different characters point of view and the characters are as I was saying the types of people that you would meet in a caravan in the middle of the 19th century in the course of a journey through Mecca to Medina so there's the thief there's a chieftain of a bandit group there is a young bride who is traveling to be married off to somebody much older than her way across the other side of the desert there is a money changer who does wheeling and dealing and haggling and bargaining and figures out how to basically steal from people who are on pilgrimage. There is the bride's slave, who is a Falasha Jew from Ethiopia. Each of the characters that I have have different religious backgrounds as well. They come from different stations of life. They have different genders. They have different religious backgrounds. And they have entirely different points of view. And through their eyes, each of them, as they open the saddlebag and they suddenly discover a piece of writing in it, each of them sees and reads that writing from their different religious perspectives. The young bride comes from a Parsi Zoroastrian background. The young mullah, there is a priest there who looks at it from a very Shia Muslim background. There is at the very end somebody who looks like a dervish who is actually an English spy, 
I did a lot of research in the course of writing this book. And of course, the middle of the 19th century was the period of the great game between Russia and Britain. And Britain was having a grand old time sending out explorers, archaeologists, all of whom were essentially spies. And there were many such people, including Richard Burton, the great Richard Burton, who translated The Thousand and One Nights, who was sort of pretending to be a dervish and was actually an Englishman. So I've styled a lot of my characters on real historical personalities. It brings those different points of view all together. That was the only other thing I wanted to mention about the way I structured the book before I read something. It occurred to me that maybe I could read the section of the story when the thief has been waiting in hiding. He is on the one hand desperate to get hold of some kind of wealth so that he can buy his freedom back. He is kind of indentured to the bandit chief and is their guide. And although he manages to wangle his way with them and earn his living, he feels constrained by them because he's always under threat and he's lost his freedom. So he's trying to get wealth to buy his freedom back. But at the same time, he's terrified because he knows he has betrayed the bandit chief by running away and they are on his heels and they're going to kill him ultimately. So he's both attracted to the need for wealth and terrified and frightened and running away from his erstwhile master, if you like. And so he's in hiding, waiting for what he knows to be this very rich caravan that he has heard through rumors is passing through the desert. So I'll read you a little bit from that. Basically, the first day he lurks in the valley, second day he waits in the narrow pass, third day he came upon a lonely well on a barren stretch of road between Mecca and Medina. It was a place where pilgrims often paused, for there had been a shrine here in the old days. It was a perfect spot to pilfer from the unwary caravan before it reached the main ambush ahead. There was a roofless ruin and an old dry well on the edge of a gully where he could hide among the rocks, and a new well gushed on the road nearby, tempting travellers to stop and drink their fill. Now he stops there, and he waits, and nothing happens, and he's panic-stricken, and finally, as the last night passes and he's courted by the spectre of despair, the dawn comes. Finally, on the fourth dawn, just as he was about to give up, he glimpsed something coming from the direction of the sacred city. Something like a call from the distant horizon, an appointment with sunrise. He could see little at first. Then the watery mirages of early morning relinquished their meaning and he gradually made out three figures approaching, three notes struck against silence, the call of the coming dawn. The figures shimmered, beckoned, blurred, and then emerged at last, three men on the far horizon. This was a different language from what he had been led to expect, hardly the grand caravan he had hoped for, 
But he hid himself hurriedly in the ruined shrine and waited, counting the pulse beats in his throat. As they drew near and solidified from the quavering haze, he saw that one of the three travellers was a young man dressed in pilgrim robes, riding a camel. Another was a youth who held the bridle of the camel and walked barefoot as if before a person of great importance. The third was a black slave. There was no entourage and no wealthy train, but the rays of the rising sun gilded the straps of a fat saddlebag which had been loaded on the camel, and the sharp eye of the thief saw a pearl hanging in the left ear of the slave. There was no entourage and no wealthy train, but he was struck by the signs of marked deference which the youth showed towards the pilgrim riding the camel, a young man whose nobility of bearing was distinguishable even from this distance. There was no entourage, no train, but here's a pompous young pimp on his pilgrimage, <laughs> the thief thought. Here's a rich charlatan disguised to look as poor as I am to escape attention. Here, if this eye of mine is to be trusted, is a clever little hypocrite who's put all his wealth into a single saddlebag. But he can't fool me. He must be the merchant. It was the hour of morning prayer. As the Bedouin's hopes revived, he raised his tawny eyes towards the sky. Venus glimmered like a last kiss on the velvet horizon, and his heart sang with desire. He thought his lady fortune had abandoned him, but perhaps she loved him still. He breathed an invocation to her that this merchant was devout and willed him with all his heart to stop. His eyes grew as green as the turban wound about the young man's head when the camel approached closer and closer most people had forgotten the significance of the ruined shrine when the old spring died, and few had learned about the freshly dubbed well. But since it was the first day of the holy month of mourning, perhaps these pilgrims would want to pray. If they prided themselves on their devotion, perhaps they would stop here and find pure water. As luck would have it, the merchant stopped to perform his ablutions. It seemed to the Bedouin in his joy that the well overflowed with jubilant voices, shouting their delight. His excitement was such that he half expected the travellers to turn round and see him, but they did not. While the black slave unloaded the camel, his master dismounted and approached the well. Then he washed his face and hands in the singing happiness of the waters and knelt down to pray with the youth in attendance, and as he did so, he laid the saddlebag on the ground beside him. The thief eyed it greedily, his body taut as a spring, so far, so good. This pilgrim was devout, at least in word. If he were devout enough indeed, he thought, it would be even better for the state of his soul. Everything depended on the perfect combination of prayers and stealth. He waited for the three travellers to prostrate themselves before he slipped out of his hiding place like a snake. Within seconds, he had snatched up the saddlebag 
and started to run. That's it. If you want the rest, you have to read the book. <laughs> but yeah, you're a great storyteller. <laughs> <laughs> I was just wrapped into the whole thing. <laughs> so why don't we talk about the next book you wrote, which is called okay. Paper. This is a really interesting example of how easy it is to fail. And I really do believe in the importance of mistakes in life. I don't think we learn unless we make mistakes. And I'm really grateful for having made such a colossal mistake in this book because it helped me learn a lot of things about writing. First of all, I'll tell you what inspired me about writing paper. I came across by chance the most extraordinary little piece of information about the paper on which the Barb, the Herald of the Baha'i Faith, on which the Barb wrote his most important book called the Bayan. I learned that it was written on pieces of green paper, which had their origin, to my astonishment, in England. In other words, they were pieces of English paper. Hmm. And I thought, good Lord, this is astounding. <laughs> For anyone who is a Baha'i, who believes ardently in this faith, to think a religion which began in the heart of Persia in the middle of the 19th century should have had one of its great works written on English paper astounds me. <laughs> so I started doing some research and I found that in the middle of the 19th century, paper was at a premium in Iran. It's very interesting because the history of paper, in fact, one of the best aspects of this book is the chronology at the very, very end of the book. I call it the paper chronology. And it tells the story of how paper began. And it starts in the uh, second century AD, 105, in the reign of Ho Ti during the Xin Chu period, the eunuch Tsai Lun, I'm not sure I'm saying it right, makes paper for the first time of mulberry bark. So the story of paper starts in China, and it takes at least five or six hundred years before it reaches the Middle East. And it's in the course of a battle between the Arabs and the Chinese that the secret of making paper is finally stolen by the Arabs and brought further west. And it isn't until much, much later that it actually gets picked up by Europe and brought to Europe. And before this time, the monks in Europe were writing on parchment, of course. And it was only much, much later that they finally found the secret of rag paper and began to write with first vegetable materials and then rag until paper really became vellum. And it wasn't until the middle of the 19th century, this is the fascinating conjunction of historical facts, that paper began to be very rare. It was difficult to find rags. And so some of the early explorers in Egypt actually raked up mummy rags, mummy wrappings, and brought them all the way to Maine <laughs> in the United States, to the paper mills of Maine. And it created a cholera epidemic at the time. It's a really fascinating story. And it led to gradually the discovery of, and this happened in Germany, 
how to make paper from wood pulp. So there was a revolution in the middle of the 19th century from rag paper to wood pulp paper, which is the kind of paper we have today. What is interesting is that in Iran, they didn't catch up with the wood pulp paper until a little bit later. So they first got their paper from abroad. It was imported from Russia and from Britain because of the great game, which I mentioned earlier. Russia was an imperial power. Britain had already colonized India. And so paper gradually filtered into Iran from the north through Russia and from the south through Bushehr, through India. And it was through India, through the English paper that was coming through India, that the Bab was able, through his trade contacts, to have access to paper. I was so interested in this that I became obsessed with the notion of paper. And this is where I made the mistake. I had the idea and I constructed a story from the idea. Well, it just doesn't work that way. You have to have a story tell itself to you, as I described in the saddlebag. The story has to exist. It has to be there. It can't be constructed completely out of thin air. This book, Paper, is really an example of where the form, or rather the, how can I put it, the idea of the story dominated the story. It was more of an idea, a metaphor, a concept than it was an actual flesh and blood story. So it's got many interesting things in it, and it's an absolute smorgasbord of little anecdotes, but it actually failed as a book, I think. As a novel, it failed because it was too much. It didn't have that right balance between structure, between form and spirit. The spirit of the story was weaker than the form of it, the idea of it. So I find that quite an interesting example of how you can learn what you have to do. <laughs> you have to learn that the administrative order, for example, coming back to the Baha'i concept, has to be that perfect balance between spirit and form. It can't absent itself from the spirit. It can't just be a system. It has to be somehow fed through some immaterial thing, which is what writing is about, which is what narrative, creative writing is about. It has to come through the spirit and it can't just come through the head. And this is a book that basically came through my head. It's an interesting book. It's structured in five parts. It's the five parts relate to the different types of paper. There's straw paper, rag paper, wood pulp paper, silk paper, and finally spirit paper. And each of those parts begins with a dream. And each of the dreams that I've described is very closely related to Persian miniatures, which I think anyone who knows anything about Persian miniatures would immediately recognize some of the archetypal images that you have in Persian miniatures, the flowering tree, the rippling stream, the person couched on the side of the stream who has opened a book or a person playing a flute, a lady with a lute. These are the archetypal images that are in so many Persian miniatures, the tower and inside the tower, the beautiful princess looking out. I've played with these various images in the dreams that begin each section of this book. And so if you like, I can read you a little bit from the first dream. Sure, please. And it won't be a long passage, just gives you a, a taste of how I got drunk on my own metaphor. <laughs> the scribe is the character I follow through this stream, and the scribe is forever looking for the ideal paper. He's obsessed with the 
absolute. He thinks that if he could find the perfect medium, then he would be able to write the perfect poem. So it's exactly that which I failed to do. I was looking for the perfect form, imagining that I could find the great story inside it, and it has to be the other way around. So the scribe starts the story having this dream, and he goes all the way through the book looking for that absolute idealized paper, which seems to be somehow or other in the hands of the prisoner in the citadel of the small remote town in the top northernmost area of Iran. I've set this in the context of the period when the Bab was imprisoned in Chehrik, for those who know anything about Baha'i history. It was during that time that he was at his most prolific. It was during that time that he wrote 5,000 verses a day, you know, writing the Bayan on that green paper that I found had come from Britain. So I start my story with the scribe having a dream. The scribe was having a dream in his delirium. He dreamed that he was walking in melting snow beside a river. He walked immaculate along a path among clusters of hyacinths between rows of conciliatory cypresses and his feet were delicate as he trod. They were hyacinths of wisdom ruby and amber and sapphire blue, and the cypresses were modest in their magnanimity. They dipped their heads above him as he walked with an air of sovereign remedy, and he noted with a tincture of surprise that the waters of the river flowed with the sweet companionship of milk, and the air hung pure as beaten silver all about him. There was a bridge in his dream, which spanned the Milky River like a chant, with its head to the east and its feet to the west. As he approached it, he glimpsed a waiting orchard on the other side. It was an orchard full of cherry trees in bloom, and the petals from the blossom fell like pieces of paper all over the ground. The scribe was seized with a sense of urgency and excitement when he saw the orchard. The season would change. The paper would disintegrate. He had to gather it quickly. He had to gather it all. Without further reflection, he ran across the bridge to the harvest on the other side. Thank you so much for that reading. Why don't you share with us about your third book, The Woman Who Read Too Much? This is a book where I knew the story was already there. The story that inspired me was the story of Guratul Ain Tahere, the great heroine of the early Baha'i history. The woman who took off her veil, who made a break with the Islamic traditions and showed the independent nature of the Babi's belief. I knew that story very, very well, but I also knew that 99% of the planet did not know that story and probably didn't care. So my challenge was, how do I tell a story which I know is going to be terribly important for the world? <laughs> mm. I just know it is. And already, even since I've written it, I wrote it in 2007. Actually, I started writing this story long, long before in um, the 1980s. And then it went through various incarnations and it finally turned into a novel in 2007. And it took another seven years before it was finally published in English. So it took that long to actually get into print. 
but I knew it was going to ultimately take much longer before it became common knowledge to a large number of people in the world, because the notion of a woman's independence, of the break with the accumulated rituals and customs and cultural baggage of religion and its true spirit, all of these things are the issues of our time. They are the questions of our age, the independence of religion from its cultural baggage, from its social laws, the difference between the spirit of religion and the cultural aspects of the laws and customs accrued to religion. I knew that these are questions of our time. So I knew that the story of Tahereh was ultimately going to belong to the world. It does already. It's not even just an Iranian history story. It belongs to the planet. So I had to write a story that nobody knew about, but would ultimately want to know about and would find out about. But I had to write it in a way that would not just be a Baha'i story, because, as I said, this belongs to everybody. So I realized I had to cast the story from a very different point of view from the one that one is accustomed to growing up in a Baha'i family. So I chose to talk about it from the point of view of women who were inspired by actual, real, historical women in the 19th century. One was the mother of the Shah, Nasruddin Shah. One was the sister of the Shah. One was the wife of the mayor of Tehran. And the other was the daughter of this poetess of Ghazvin, as I call her. I don't give any of my characters a name. This was the third book I'd written based in 19th century history. And the other challenge I had was to make a remote country, a remote culture, a remote time seem accessible to a modern reader. And that was really a challenge. But I had a feeling that there was something about each of those women, the mother, the sister, the wife, the daughter, that was absolutely universal and common to all of us. We are all eternally mothers, daughters, sisters, wives. I mean, women have been in those roles forever, and it doesn't matter which country or culture we belong to. So I felt that it was quite important to cast this book into four little parts. So I've got the book of the mother, the book of the sister, the book of the wife, and the book of the daughter. In each of them, I look through the perspective, again, that different point of view, through the eyes of different characters. And I gradually build up the story of this central mystery, this woman called the poetess of Ghazvin, whom everybody is seeing from these different points of view. And running all the way through is the idea of reading. It's called the woman who read too much. And of course, anybody who's read Shakespeare and Macbeth in particular remembers that line, men must not walk too late. It's ominous in its warning, because of course, the man who did walk too late was Banquo, who got murdered by Macbeth. And so that line is a hint of don't do that too much, don't go there too far. And this notion of reading too much is the ultimate danger in relation to being a woman, because of course that indicates independence of mind, independence of spirit and thought, and freedom of choice, basically. Mm. So all the way through, the metaphor of reading is terribly important, and it's about how do we read life? How do we read our own lives? How do we read history? How do we read the times in which we live, the history of our now? How do we interpret, basically, reality? 
so that we don't kid ourselves, delude ourselves, and look back upon our past with eyes amazed by our own folly. Well, we will always anyway, but it's also looking back in history. So my chronological line here is going backwards and forwards. I have characters who act in a certain way and who then 30 years later look back on themselves and say, oh my God, I didn't realize that and come to their senses in a different way. So that I play with time as well as point of view. It spans 50 years in terms of jumping backwards and forwards in time. And it follows the line of three and a half years in a linear fashion from A to Z, following the last three years of the time when this poetess is under house arrest in the house of the mayor of Tehran until her death. So it's quite a complex book. It's like writing a tapestry. It was like weaving a, a carpet, if you like. It has threads running in many different directions. It's a challenge to read, but I do think it's one of the more important books that I've written, and I do hope that it has a long life. But he didn't have handy an excerpt to read from her novel, The Woman Who Read Too Much. So she recorded one and emailed it to me. This passage describes how the father of the poetess finds out that she has fled from his house, where she had been confined after the murder of her uncle. How empty the library was after her going. Her father stayed in there, touching the spines of the books, caressing the pages she used to read to him. He lingered the whole day in there after her escape, murmuring and weeping. How he missed the sound of her voice, her chanting. How he deplored the silence in the Anderun. She had taken her pencase with her and her reeds, but it was only after several hours had passed that he noticed the gaps on the shelves. She had chosen carefully. She had selected only the most important to her, and the spaces where the books used to be mocked him, teased him with his ignorance of their titles. He had the impression that if he could only remember which ones she had chosen, he might be able to trace where she had gone. But try as he might, he could not summon those texts to memory, nor retain why it was they had been so important to his daughter. He recalled their passionate arguments about them, he remembered their differing interpretations of them, but the substance of the books, which were the pivot of their talks, eluded him. He realised that those gaps on the library shelves bore witness to his greatest loss of all, for without the knowledge of what had lain on them, the mind, as well as the body of his beloved daughter, had slipped between his fingers. Bahia, you have another book that you're about to release. Why don't you introduce us to that one? Well, this is completely different. <laughs> it's a bit like Monty Python saying that. And now for something completely different. The fourth novel I've written is not in the 19th century. It's not about Iran in the Qajar dynasty period. It is a contemporary story, and it is very, very topical at the moment. It's about the diaspora. It's about the Iranian diaspora 
and it is set in our world today. And so it has a completely different flavor. It's written in a different language altogether. It can really relate to a lot of the concerns that we have today about immigrants, about refugees, about travel bans, about you name it. It's got a lot of relevance to what's happening. But it was a book which is also different in another respect. I've always used irony. I've always enjoyed playing with humor in all these books. But this book is really an out-and-out satire. So I do warn the reader against it (laughs) because it is very naughty. Yes, there you go. And the title of the book? The title of the book is Us and Them. I would like to emphasize the fact that the us and the them are linked closely with the ampersand sign of and. So it's not us and them, it's us and them. And it's not us and them either, it's the full ampersand sign, linking those two words together so that when you look at it on the page, it should be one word. It's not us versus them either, it's us and them, it's all one. And I've really, really worked on that oneness in it because I think this is one of the crises of our age. We've divided us and them, we've made it us versus them, and the conflict between these two is the disease of our times. I do think satire is also a very, very useful tool. This is also something of a challenge because as Baha'is, we do not meddle in any form of partisan political activity. However, we are encouraged and in fact summoned by the writings, particularly of Shoghi Effendi, to be responsible in terms of our civil engagement and our civic awareness. And I find that very, very interesting. In other words, we have to be political in the broadest sense. We have to be aware of the concerns and the needs of the age in which we live. And that means political in a very non-partisan way, because the needs of the age in which we live today are to get beyond partisan and sectarian divisions. That is the need of our age. Really, this book has got a very serious inspiration, but I've used satire to get there. And I think that's what I find the interesting experiment here, because I think satire is one of the tools with which we can look very critically at some of our own weaknesses, not to attack others, but to look at ourselves. It is an us story rather than seeing the flaws of them. I am myself a Persian. I'm an Iranian. I'm also a member, if you like, of the Iranian diaspora. I'm talking about my own problems and issues and weaknesses. I'm not on the outside of that. I hope that it's a very inclusive book, that its satire is inclusive, all-encompassing, world-embracing, because I think the Iranians all over the world are a fascinating group of people. Since some of the earliest Iranian members of the diaspora were in fact Baha'is fleeing from persecution in Iran in the 19th century, it's got a particular juice to the subject for me, if you like. There's a Baha'i root to this story as well. Thank you very, very much for having the patience to hear me out. 
Oh, absolutely, Bahia. No worries there. I want to make one point, and I'd like you to respond to it, and that is that central to this theme of the day is, from the Baha'i point of view, justice and unity, Mm -hmm. and that the Baha'i orientation is that the earth is but one country and mankind its citizens. Absolutely. And that justice... What's the hidden word that Baha'u'llah says about justice? Best beloved of all things in my sight is justice. Right. So we, as Baha'is, need to be defenders of the principles of unity and justice without creating disunity. Exactly. This is the great challenge of our times. And I guess you've summed up why I use satire, Warren. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's not easy. <laughs> <laughs> and many a Baha'i feels the challenge as well. Yes, especially at this time. Yes. Right. Bahia, it was really a pleasure. Thank, thank you so much for doing this interview with me. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Bahia Nachtavani, author of three novels and is about to release her fourth book, Us and Them, a satirical work about the political divide over immigration. You can find this interview and other interviews at abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.